The great fiction author and devout Catholic Flannery O'Connor wrote the following letter to a friend in 1955, quote, I was once five or six years ago taken by some friends to have dinner with Mary McCarthy and her husband, Mr. Broadwater. She just wrote that book, A Charmed Life. She departed the church at the age of 15 and is a big intellectual. We went at eight and at one. I hadn't opened my mouth once, there being nothing for me in such company to say. The people who took me there were Robert Lowell and his now wife, Elizabeth Hardwick. Having me there was like having a dog present who had been trained to say a few words, but overcome with inadequacy, had forgotten them. Well, toward morning, the conversation turned on the Eucharist, which I, being the Catholic, was obviously supposed to defend. Mrs. Broadwater said when she was a child and received the host, she thought of it as the Holy Ghost, he being the most portable person of the Trinity. Now she thought of it as a symbol and implied that it was a pretty good one. I then said in a very shaky voice, Well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. That was all the defense I was capable of. But I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about it, outside of a story, except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. End quote. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. If you've been following along, you'll recall that we were discussing the Eucharist, also known as communion or the Lord's Supper. In episode nine, I talked about the context of the Eucharist, which is the Passover Seder. And I ended that episode focusing on Jesus's words, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance in the Jewish understanding is not merely a cognitive activity. Rather, the Jewish idea of memorial liturgy is mystical in nature, bending time and space so that it all becomes a single story. The Eucharist is one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. In fact, in a sense, it's the pinnacle of the sacraments. The Catechism states it is, quote, the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. End quote. No wonder Flannery O'Connor, a devout Catholic, blurted out her objection to referring to the Eucharist as a mere symbol. In an earlier episode, I mentioned that when Protestants convert to Catholicism, it's a little bit like American Ninja Warrior. In that show, there's a series of obstacles, and the contestants work through them to try to get to the finish line. Some are easier than others. Some can prove to be real challenges for the athletes. I use that analogy because Protestants have to work through a series of obstacles, uh, the Catholic doctrines to be specific, in their process of conversion. As a Protestant, I was told so many things about Catholicism that were flat-out lies, half-truths, and somewhat truthful, with the caveat that Catholics were wrong. To embrace Catholicism, us Protestants have to first unlearn all the things that were told to us about Catholicism, and it's a little bit like going through those obstacles in American Ninja Warrior. Personally speaking, in coming to Catholicism, my biggest hurdle was no doubt the Eucharist. It's not because I didn't know the Catholic Church's teaching about the Eucharist. It's because I did know. In fact, nearly 20 years before my conversion to Catholicism, I remember having a conversation with a parishioner at the Baptist church I was pastoring. He had been dating a Catholic young lady, and they were starting to experience friction in their relationship due to their differing faiths. He asked if I would meet with them, and I agreed. When we began the conversation, the Catholic girlfriend said, Look, I don't understand what the big deal is. He's Baptist, I'm Catholic, so what? 
I said, well, you too do have some pretty different beliefs. I said, for example, us Baptists believe that in communion, the bread and wine are symbols. Catholics, on the other hand, believe that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. She objected. No, we don't. Sure you do, I insisted. It's called transubstantiation. That's not what we believe, she interjected. Yes, I'm certain of it, I assured her. The Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's kind of a big deal. She continued protesting, and I decided to drop it. No wonder she doesn't think these differing beliefs are a big deal, I thought. She doesn't even believe what her church teaches about its most important doctrine. As I've stated in earlier episodes, I believed, like Mrs. Mary McCarthy Broadwater, that the Eucharist was a symbol, an important memorial meant to lead us into a place of seeking the Lord. But at the end of the day, it was just a symbol. It didn't matter if crumbs from the bread fell onto the floor, if there was leftover crackers or grape juice when church had ended, we just tossed it in the garbage or down the drain or just ate it, because to us, it was just a symbol. As I was considering Catholicism and working through the various doctrinal obstacles, I wondered how in the world was I ever going to believe that the Eucharist was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It was just so different than anything I had ever been taught or had taught myself. My eureka moment came at a Bible study with some of our friends from our previous evangelical church. I shared this story in episode 4 on the Ark of the Covenant, but I'm going to share it again. In our Bible study, we were reading 1 Samuel chapters 4-6. through 6. The story begins with the Philistines slaughtering Israel in battle. A few of the elders decided that if they brought the Ark of the Covenant into their next battle, kind of like their good luck charm, then they would be successful in beating the Philistines. But it didn't work. The Philistines once again slaughtered Israel, and to make matters worse, they hijacked the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most sacred and holiest artifact. The Philistines took the Ark back to the city of Ashdod and placed the Ark in their temple to their god Dagon. The next day, they discovered their god Dagon lying prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They picked him up and went about their day. The next day, they found Dagon lying prostrate again, but this time his head and hands were cut off and placed on the threshold of the temple. Soon, all the Philistines in Ashdod started breaking out in tumors, and finally, they wised up and realized that it was the Ark that was the bad omen. But instead of returning the Ark back to Israel, they sent it to another Philistine city, the city of Gath. The people there didn't fare any better. They also began breaking out in tumors. Finally, after playing hot potato with the Ark for some time, the Philistines decided to finally send it back to Israel. They loaded the Ark on a cart pulled by two oxen. They put a chest of gold on the cart as well and pointed the oxen back towards Israel and said, good riddance. When the cart with the Ark arrived back in Israeli territory, the Israelites threw a celebration. They slaughtered the oxen as a burnt offering, giving thanks that the Ark had returned home. However, that night, some of the Israelites decided to try and remove the lid of the ark and take a peek inside, and God slaughtered them for it. There's discrepancies as to how many people died. Some manuscripts state that it was 70 people. Some say a whopping 50,070 people. Either way, the people who profaned God's sacred chest paid for it with their lives, whether they were Philistines or Israelites. After we read the story, one of the women at the Bible study asked a profound question. She said, is the ark a symbol or is it God? 
At the time, I had been secretly pondering Catholicism, but her question made me realize something. The Ark wasn't just a symbol. It couldn't be. It was a theophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of God. God at times manifested his power, presence, and holiness on particular objects. For example, the burning bush, which spoke to Moses, or the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that led Israel in the wilderness. Those were examples of God manifesting his presence on natural objects, but the Ark of the Covenant was a man-made object on which God concentrated his presence as well. It can't be just a symbol, I said. Symbols don't make people sick. Symbols don't kill people. And it was right at that moment when I said that, that I had a mental and spiritual breakthrough. I immediately thought about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, where he instructed the church at Corinth on communion. In verse 11, he wrote, quote, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, end quote. The Eucharist can't be just a symbol, I thought. Symbols don't make people sick. Symbols don't kill people. There's a theological concept that goes like this. Whatever is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, its fulfillment in the New Testament is even greater. Or to use the words of Hebrews 10.1, quote, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, end quote. For example, in the Exodus story, the Israelites slaughtered lambs, painted the lamb's blood on their doorposts, and ate the lambs. This was their first Passover. That night, the angel of death came to Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons. However, when the angel saw the homes that had blood on the doorposts, the angel passed over those homes, sparing the lives of those inside. On Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, the high priest would slaughter a bull and a goat, take the blood into the holy innermost room of the tabernacle, and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This was an annual event to make atonement for Israel's sins. Hopefully you see the connection between the shedding of blood and the remission of sins. This is central to biblical theology. At the crucifixion, Jesus the Messiah became the fulfillment of Passover and Yom Kippur. He became our sacrifice once for all. We no longer have to make annual animal sacrifices. We no longer have to paint lamb's blood on our doorposts to escape death. Jesus' body was nailed to the cross and his blood smattered across those beams in this moment that bends the time-space continuum. The new covenant fulfillment is greater than the Old Testament foreshadowing. In John 6, Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. He referred to himself as the fulfillment of the manna in the wilderness. Just as God rained down manna from heaven to give the Hebrews food, so Jesus is the miraculous bread of life that came down from heaven to become our spiritual food. Only the people in the wilderness ate the manna and died, but those who eat of the new manna will have eternal life. What does it mean to eat this new manna? In John 6:51, Jesus says, quote, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. End quote. When the people there became confused, Jesus clarified it further, saying, quote, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. End quote. 
So just as the Israelites ate the Passover lamb and the unleavened bread and escaped the horrors of slavery in Egypt and ventured toward the promised land, we in eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood gain eternal life. But how do we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? The answer was revealed in that Passover meal I talked about in episode 9. Luke 22, 19-20 states, quote, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, end quote. If the Old Covenant feasts of Passover and Yom Kippur were essential for Israel's deliverance, salvation, and relationship with God, how much more is the New Covenant celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, essential for our deliverance, salvation, and relationship with God? In the consecration of the Eucharist, the bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It becomes a theophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of God. Just as profaning the Ark of the Covenant came with severe consequences, Paul tells us that profaning the Lord's Supper may come with a severe penalty as well. And just as the Ark of the Covenant was a means for reconciliation with God, consuming the Eucharist with humility and reverence offers eternal life with relationship with God. The Mass is often called the sacrifice because in the Eucharist, we are partaking of the sacrificed Christ. Some Protestants argue that in doing this, Catholics are re-sacrificing Jesus, contradicting the book of Hebrews, which makes it clear that Jesus was our sacrifice once for all. This accusation is an example of misunderstanding Catholic theology, that whole getting lost in translation thing that I talked about in episode two called the language of Catholicism. The crucifixion was a moment where the supernatural entered into the natural, or to use C.S. Lewis's words, the myth became fact. It shattered the time-space continuum, whereas the sacrifice of Yom Kippur was only effectual for those alive at that time, Jesus' sacrifice is effective for all of eternity. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, it still enters into our time and space today. And so the Mass is that portal whereby we enter into the eternal, where we eat of the eternal Lamb of God and we enter into eternal life. We are not recreating the crucifixion because that cannot nor need not be recreated. It is being represented in the Mass. And in its representation or representation, we are entering into it because its eternal nature means that although it has happened in a particular place at a particular time, it is still happening in an eternal and effectual sense. In Revelation 5, 6, John in his vision of heaven noted that, quote, I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, end quote. Jesus presents himself as a lamb that had been slaughtered in the eternity of heaven because the temporal moment of the crucifixion extends into eternity. And so in the liturgy of the Eucharist, that particular part of the Passover Seder that Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, we are entering into the mystical. As the Jewish writer Leon Wesseltier so eloquently put, quote, in the age of tradition, the past was present. It was one of the primary purposes of Jewish ritual and liturgy to abolish time, to make Jews divided by history into contemporaries and those divided by geography into neighbors. In this way, the many communities of Judaism were unified into a single people and the experiences of many Jews into a single story, end quote. 
And so it is with the Eucharist. It becomes the single story. It is the Last Supper. It is the crucifixion. It is the current moment. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, all bound up into one. And we become neighbors and contemporaries with all of those at the table partaking of the same sacrificed Lamb of God, Jesus, our Messiah. I'm with Flannery O'Connor on this one. If it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. The Eucharist is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. Thank you for joining me for the 10th episode of Why Catholic. I'm so grateful to be able to do this podcast and so grateful for you for joining me. If you haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcast provider. And you know, I would love it if you would join the Why Catholic community. Just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. If this podcast is helpful to you, take a minute to review it and maybe even share it with your loved ones. There's so much more ahead, but in the meantime, thanks for joining me. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. Catholic.